Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, uh, I'm Bob Shrum, the Warsaw professor and the director of the Center for the Political Future here at USC Dornsife. Uh, with us today as part of the National Week of Conversation is Gordon Brown, the prime minister who arguably saved the world during the 2008-2009 financial crisis. As the longest-serving chancellor of the Exchequer in modern history, he transformed monetary policy by making the Bank of England independent of political interference, and he carried through the most far-reaching reforms in domestic policy in Britain since the late 1940s, including the introduction of a first-ever minimum wage, and measures that massively reduced poverty and child poverty, reformed and strengthened the National Health Service, and opened a far wider range of opportunity across society. He is a rare combination of brilliance on substantive issues and brilliance in political strategy. He is once again teaching a course this April at USC. He is also my friend and one of the political leaders, one of the two political leaders of my lifetime that I have known that I most admire. We will talk for about 45 minutes and leave the last 15 minutes for audience questions. We will focus on both the politics of globalization and the reality of today's global order, or perhaps I should say disorder. The two areas are closely related, so let me start with the most urgent issue. Uh, The war in Ukraine constitutes a fundamental breakdown in the post-Cold War international order that we largely took for granted for a long time. What happened? What's likely to happen? How dangerous is the conflict? And is the West likely to sustain support for Ukraine? Look, first of all, can I say what a a real privilege it is to be at the University of Southern California. I had to be teaching here. I had to be listening to the students, to be talking to the staff. I was once a a university lecturer, and I know that universities stand for integrity, rationality, for the pursuit of truth, the search for knowledge. Uh, And these were all the qualities I had to leave behind when I went into politics. (laughs) And I'm so pleased also to be here with my friend Bob Schoen. Bob Schoen is known not only in this continent, but known throughout the world for his expertise as a political strategist, as a writer, as someone whom people look to for advice. Uh, So Bob's not only uh, a great friend of mine, uh, everybody I know admires Bob and what he's achieved. Now, Ukraine. So you've got to start with uh, Putin. Uh, I had the... uh, dubious honor of meeting Putin on a number of occasions when I was finance minister and I was um, prime minister. Uh, And the first thing you notice when you you meet him is if you look at Wikipedia or any official account, they say he's five foot seven. When you actually meet him, it's clear he's uh, a lot smaller than that. And there I was in his office, and he's sitting at this high desk, right? So he looks as if he's six foot six. And I'm put into this couch or settee where you sink into it. So all you have to do is look up at this great man. And that's the first uh, impression you have of uh, meeting him. Then he takes out these uh, philo cards, you know, these old filofax things. And like the KGB agent he was, he starts reading out this information. He said, uh, 
you were born on such such a day, <laughs> you went to university, so on and so forth. And he wants you to think uh, he knows more about you than you actually know about yourself. But the one thing that comes out of these meetings, the first and all the meetings I had with him, uh, is threats. The only thing he understands is strength. He will exploit any weakness. And uh, I know that uh, uh, from the first time when he was saying, look, if you don't buy our oil on our terms in the West, we're going to sell it to the East. And he's still saying that now. And there's a lot of leaders that thought at the start that he was going to be the the democratic uh, president. He was going to bring Russia into the world order, that he was going to behave well. Uh, I was never under that illusion, I'll be honest with you, from the first time I met him. Some of you may know this uh, story, um, because it's important to understand Putin to understand what's happening in Ukraine. Um, a group of American business leaders came to, to, to meet him at the Kremlin, and he was being introduced to these uh, leaders, and, and one of them was a guy called Robert Kraft, who, who, who was the New England Patriots, uh, uh, and uh, he was on the delegation. And we were going along this slide, uh, and this guy, Robert Kraft, was wearing one of these rings from the Super Bowl, uh, and Putin says, that's, uh, that's an amazing ring. That's an amazing ring. So Robert Kraft, quite rightly, sort of takes it off and shows him it. Putin looks at the ring, puts it in his pocket, and moves on. <laughs> that, that's the definition of a kleptocracy. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's said to have said at the time, I could kill with that. Imagine. Uh, I then came across him in 2008. Uh, well, actually, it was 2007, when, when after the Litvinenko assassination. Now, you remember that Putin ordered the assassination of one of his former agents on the streets of London, uh, and he was poisoned, as, as, as you know, and you read it on Wikipedia, you can see all the details. And we knew that Putin had personally ordered this assassination, personally. We knew he was sending agents into the country, and he had plans for more assassinations in Britain. And it was only by expelling a whole load of diplomats, by threatening them with retaliation if there was further action, that for the next 10 years, we prevented people being assassinated on the streets of London. And he had a list of people that he wanted to eliminate. I mean, almost unheard of that the leader of another country can dictate the assassination of people in this country. But the only thing this man understands is strength and any sign of weakness. And it happened over Georgia, and then it happened over Crimea, where he got into Crimea and thought that he uh, could get off with impunity from invading the whole of Ukraine and was under the delusion that the people of Ukraine wanted him to take over and uh, that we get, got to this war. So this, this has been the first war on European uh, soil led by a great power since 1945. It's a war that's been fighted perhaps for the first time in the way it is by drones and by cyber uh, activities. Uh, it's at a stalemate, in my view, because although there's been a Russian push uh, that didn't wholly succeed, there's also a Ukraine push that is not um, probably going to succeed and you're going to have a stalemate. Uh, and the, the truth is that this war has revealed something about the whole global order that we've really got to take into account now because it's shown NATO unity. So all the countries of Western Europe and, uh, and, and, and obviously America and Canada and so on, are supporting this effort. NATO unity. Sweden and uh, uh, no uh, Finland have now joined NATO for the first time uh, when they were reluctant to do so uh, for, for many, many decades. But it's revealed global disunity. Because look around the world at what actually happened. The number of countries that abstained or voted with Russia at the United Nations, 99 uh, only supported the expulsion of Russia 
from the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. Now, it's an obvious act of aggression. It should have been uh, punished in the way that was being proposed. All of us, I think, can understand that if you allow acts of aggression uh, to go without um, uh, punishment and with impunity, you're going to encourage others, and that may lead us on to discuss what may happen in Taiwan and so on and so forth. But 99 countries uh, were not prepared uh, to discipline uh, Russia, and only 40 of 195 countries, well, 193 in the United Nations, sometimes we're talking about 195, only 40 have imposed sanctions. And so you've got this situation where you've got Western unity, global disunity. Hardly a country in Africa or in Latin America or in the Middle East uh, or in Asia that is actually supporting the action. And many countries that are using the fact of action, like India and so on and so forth, to gain uh, political advantage uh, for themselves uh, or to break the sanctions uh, by buying uh, oil uh, and, and gas and so on uh, from Russia at this, uh, this time. So what is it telling us about this global order? And this, I think, is uh, the most important thing to come out of this, because uh, you've got to look at what the implications are for the future. We are now no longer in a unipolar world, but we're in a multipolar world. Uh, We are in a world where America is no longer hegemonic. It's got to persuade. It cannot command. And the fact of the matter is that all of us in the West, including the United Kingdom, have failed to persuade Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, and much of Asia about the merits of our case, even when it's an obvious act of aggression that should never go unpunished. And, and the, the catalogue of war crimes that we're now seeing uh, against innocent civilians, against children, uh, torture, abduction, sexual crimes, which are now being uh, uh, documented, it shows that the Russians are stopping at nothing uh, to win uh, in Ukraine. So I expect this to be a long war. Uh, I I think there'll have to be a diplomatic solution at some point, uh, Bob, and I think everybody knows that every war has got to end in some way, Uh, but it could be a long war. But I think the the, the key thing about the global society that we live in, that it's revealed, is yes, Western unity, but yes, huge global disunity. And now we've got to look at why it is, because it's not from love of Russia, that African countries and Asian countries and Latin American countries are not supporting us in a clear act of aggression is because they feel that we have let them down in other areas, and sometimes they feel it's double standards. And certainly after COVID, where we didn't provide the vaccines, and now that we've got energy and food crises and we're not helping with famine, we've now got debt crisis in the poorest parts of the world and we're not doing enough on debt. These are the lessons I think we've got to learn. So I'll finish there, Bob, but the main point I want to make is this has revealed something about the changing world that we've really got to address. Let's talk about an, uh, another one of those big changes. Uh, the other, and we hope less immediate challenge, comes from China, which was admitted to the World Trade Organization on the assumption that, yes, it would be a competitor, but also a partner in a rules-based international order. That assumption now seems increasingly dubious. How can the West handle the new challenges from China which range from theft of intellectual property to threats to Taiwan, a more assertive military presence in the South China Sea, to its global outreach and the changes in the Chinese system of governance itself. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want you to think that name dropping, but I have met uh, President Xi on a number of occasions as well. And, and I do want to give you an insight into what he's like uh, also. Uh, I met him in China. I met him in, uh, in the United, United Kingdom when he had a state visit to the United Kingdom. 
And the last time I met him, he said two things at the beginning, which are really uh, uh, memorable because they do raise a number of questions that are related to what Bob just said. He said, right at the beginning of our conversation, he said, we, China, must avoid two traps. And you're thinking, what, what does he really mean? He said, yeah, first of all, we've got to avoid the middle income trap. Now, those of you who are economists know exactly what that means, that countries can move up the development ladder, but they cannot move to the next stage to be a high-income country because they get stuck, because they don't have the economic uh, uh, power or they don't have the proper uh, policies being pursued. And most Latin American countries, many Asian countries are caught in this middle-income trap. And China, he said, is determined to avoid the middle-income trap. And then surprisingly, he said, because I didn't expect him to say this, we've got to avoid a second trap. And he said, the Thucydides trap. Now, all of you who've studied international relations and political science will know what that means. Thucydides was writing about how the rising power, which in this case was uh, Athens, uh, was putting fear into the hearts of the established power, which was Sparta. And as Graham Allison at Harvard, who writes about this, says 16 occasions where you've had in the world history the rising power ending up in conflict with the entrenched power, uh, and it ends in warfare and bitterness. In fact, the only time it really hasn't happened in recent times, Germany, of course, and the United Kingdom led to the First World War or was part party of the First World War. The only time it hasn't happened, by the way, Bob, is when the United Kingdom gladly and uh, happily gave up its leadership to the United States of America, which you'll be very pleased about, uh, happened without any uh, violence. Uh, in the in 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 this in this last century, although you did get rid of the monarchy, and it's always surprised me how much um, how much uh, when I come to America, people love the monarchy here, despite the fact you kicked uh, George the George the Third out uh, in uh, in the seventeen seventies. Um, so, so what he's saying is he, he's got to avoid two traps. Now you either believe him or not. Is this just rhetoric? That first of all, he's got to create prosperity in China because he is going to be judged on whether. He can give people decent standards of living. And remember, the average standard of living in China is about a quarter of what it is in the United, in the United States at the moment. And although China is a huge economy and doing brilliantly in terms of its growth rates over the last 30 or 40 years, sometimes 10%, you know, as a finance minister, uh, you're so envious of uh, that kind of rate that you can never achieve in the United Kingdom or anywhere else. Uh, but uh, he has got to justify himself by springing the middle, middle income track. Uh, does he really believe that it would be fatal for China to, if you like, fall into the Thucydides trap? So look at then what's happening now in relation to what he's saying. I would say there are about 10 major issues which are almost existential in the nature where China and America are at loggerheads. And you, got, you mentioned intellectual property, Bob. And so intellectual property, it, it always was raised when I went to China uh, we believed that China was uh, stealing intellectual property, uh, that it was uh, not inventing things, but it was very good at imitating uh, imitating things. In fact, I went to, 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 to a conference with the Indian finance minister and the Chinese finance minister. They were both there. And of course, it always starts with the Indian finance minister was speaking just before the Chinese finance is in. It says at the end of his speech. And just remember, the great thing that we've got, which makes us far superior in this continent, is we are a democracy. And then the Chinese finance minister stands up and says, the great thing that we've got is we get things done. 
<laughs> anyway, the Indian uh, minister was telling me he had gone to China and he'd gone on this international delegation. And, and funnily enough, instead of the good weather that had been predicted, there was snow and uh, Beijing. So he had to get a coat. He didn't have a coat. So he went into this international shop and w- looked for this coat. And he found this great cashmere coat worth about, uh, you know, I think it was selling for about 200 and something, very cheap and reasonable. Uh, and he said, I'd like this coat. And then he looked at it with the, with the, the shop assistant and said, yeah, but there's no label on it. There's no, there's no tag saying who's the maker. You know, there's no, there's no label for me. And the assistant said, well, what label do you want? We can, we can give you Burberry. We can give you Dior. We can give you Armani. We can give you Canale. Uh, and, of course, it was his point that China, and in this particular instance, it was just textiles, uh, was, uh, was imitating the intellectual property of other countries. But that's just one issue. Currency manipulation is an issue. Uh, technology itself, the use of uh, and role of the Internet uh, the whole question of industrial subsidies. I mean, America's got these industrial subsidies you're talking about at the moment, but China's way ahead in terms of the percentage of national income that subsidizes uh, their, their their industries. Trade tariffs and barriers, China barring that, you know, they used to prevent financial services industries coming into China. They've opened it up a bit, but they're, they're retaliating when America uh, bans uh, chips and other, uh, and other issues related to, to, to technology. And then you've got Taiwan, and then you've got Hong Kong, and then you've got the uh, religious minorities, the Uyghurs, and what's happening uh, there. Then you've got Tibet. Then you've got nuclear weapons, and then you've got climate change. So you've got a whole range of, of issues, and you could add pandemics and everything else, where the lack of cooperation be- between China and America and the standoffs in these issues could lead to some uh, conflagration at, 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 at any point. And what's really interesting when you come to nuclear weapons, because obviously Britain is a nuclear weapons power and we were in charge of our, our nuclear weapons, is that whereas with Russia, China, with Russia and America, there are guardrails, at least until recently, because Putin's abandoned some of the uh, precautions, but there was a hotline. You knew exactly what might happen if there was a potential disaster. You had fail-safe mechanisms for stopping that. Uh, weapons being fired by, by accident, at least uh, you did everything in your power to do so. There are no guardrails. There are no hotlines. There are no uh, connections uh, in relation to China using uh, nuclear weapons. And there's no agreement about rules of the game, so to speak, in relation to China. So you could have a conflagration that gets out of control uh, almost uh, immediately without uh, the ability uh, to, to control it. Now, I personally don't think that uh, China will invade uh, Taiwan in the next few years. I know that's the calculation that the American military make. I don't actually think it's the calculation that other countries are, are, are making. I think China is uh, and has to be obsessed with uh, its economic development. And clearly, if they invaded Taiwan, or a military blockade is another possibility of Taiwan, not an invasion, uh, they would prejudice their whole economic uh, policy. And although they've got this uh, new idea of dual circulation, which is basically... Uh, concentrating on the domestic economy and consumption because they don't want to be dependent on their ability to export in the future. And although they're retreating into sort of uh, uh, supply chains that are ones that they control, uh, I think uh, they're going to be more cautious than people think about putting their economic uh, agenda, which is the test of the success of the Communist Party. If they can't deliver economic prosperity, then there's going to be huge disaffection within within China. Uh, But uh, we know that there's these big issues that we're not talking about them 
We're not going to get a resolution of them quickly. And I do think we've got to think very carefully that even although we disagree fundamentally, and I do every time I met the Chinese leaders, I raise the issue of human rights. Every time we had names of people that should be released, every time we said that we would not hold a discussion with China unless there was a human rights dialogue, and we set up a human rights dialogue with China, even though we disagree fundamentally on these issues, when you have pandemics, when you have pollution, when you have financial instability, uh, in my view, you've got to find a way of, of working together. So uh, America talks about decoupling with China. Europe talks about de-risking. I think it's de-risking we need to do as much as possible, uh, but we need to find a basis of which some of... When I was asked about in the global financial crisis, what, what had I learned? And someone said, well, it's clearly what Bill Clinton said. It's the economy, stupid. And it was, of course, an economic problem. And I said, no, the lesson I've learned is that there are global problems that need global solutions, and you can't solve them without coordinated global action. And so I don't think we should uh, turn our back on this idea that the problems that we faced, light pollution, can only be solved collectively and without some form of uh, uh, discussion, dialogue, uh, cooperation, uh, collaboration. Uh, we can't we can't make progress uh, even for our own countries. So. That's where I put the relationship. So the U.S. and China hardly seem to be talking to each other at this point. Yeah, the balloon that that it be incident. Uh, but look, you know, what's happened in the last few weeks alone is the German Chancellor has visited uh, China and met President Xi. The French President has visited China and met President Xi. The Spanish Prime Minister has visited China and met President Xi. The head of the European Commission has done the same. The president of the European Council has done the same. So it's not as if uh, the rest of the West has decided that they're not going to talk to China. So you, 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 I don't think when it comes to the crunch, Europe and America will be at odds over China. But there is a, a, an ambiguity about Europe's position at the moment because they clearly, Germany doesn't want to lose its trade with China because that's the basis of German prosperity that has sold uh, cars and engineering equipment uh, to China. France doesn't want to, to break with China because it believes in what's called strategic autonomy for Europe, and it doesn't want to be dependent on, on America. So all the European countries that have got sort of power in the game here uh, want some sort of relationship with China. That, that's, you've got to face up to that. And uh, I do think uh, that it, we would we'd be doing the next generation a huge disservice if on fundamental existential issues like uh, climate change, we didn't make the attempts uh, to cooperate properly. I want to pick up on your comment about global problems need global solutions. As I mentioned in my introduction, when we did face the financial crisis, you played a central role in resolving it. Can you talk some more about that and about the role of America, which was a driving force in the process of globalization and the construction of the rules-based international order? President Biden, as you mentioned, has rallied NATO to support Ukraine and return the U.S. to the Paris Climate Accords. But in recent years, we've also seen a rise in isolationist appeals in American politics uh, and a resistance to negotiating new trade agreements. Uh, globally, are we now in a position to deal effectively with another international economic crisis or another pandemic like COVID? And if we aren't, what do we have to do to get there? The financial crisis started in America, obviously, with a subprime crisis, and many people will remember uh, that uh, uh, particular level of risk-taking that, that come on, came on stock. But it was a global problem because, for example, most of the subprime was not owned in America. 
It was actually owned in Europe. And German banks in particular bought hundreds of millions of, of these subprime uh, securities. Uh, and they were, of course, at risk of, 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 of landing up with absolutely nothing. So this was a global financial crisis, and it could not be solved without coordinated action. But you know, when you, cut, when you get a crisis, and you, know, you, you must be looking at what's happening with Silicon Valley Bank and all these other regional banks and saying, well, what lies behind this? It's not just one sort of bank manager that's made a mistake. There's, there's a lot of things going on here. And when it came to the global financial crisis, nobody seemed to know what was going on. Because everybody said, there's a liquidity problem. We don't have money. Can you give us short-term money? I had one guy the night before his bank collapsed. He said, all I need is overnight finance. <laughs> and the bank collapsed, I think, with 50 billion of debts the next day. I mean, uh, and then some people thought, well, it, you know, it's, 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 it's a crisis that is to do with having bad assets. You, you know, you've got some bad assets, so let's get rid of them. And that's when America developed what was called the Troubled Assets Program, TARP. I'd spent ages trying to solve that problem. Now, we, you, if you've got a crisis, you've got to get to the root of the problem quickly. You can't allow yourself to be fiddling around on, on, on the superficial manifestations of it and, and, and not actually get to the heart of the problem. And of course, the heart of the problem in 2008 was capitalism was being run without capital, if you put it as simply as that. The banks were completely over-leveraged without the capital to be able to uh, sustain themselves when they were under pressure. They were completely undercapitalized. And we decided that that was the problem in Britain. We nationalized uh, some of our banks. We put money behind it so that we could uh, ensure capital adequacy for these institutions. America was still talking about troubled assets. If you could only get the assets out of the bank, then they'd be fine. And I kept saying to George Bush and others, no, the problem is capital. I, 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 you know, I remember going to George Bush's office after Lehman's Brothers collapsed, and I asked to see him at the, at the White House. Uh, I maybe shouldn't tell this story, actually. <laughs> anyway, to cut, a, cut a long story. So he said, he said, look, he said, uh, Hank Poulsen's a man for this because he was the Treasury Secretary, and he's very tired at the moment. Uh, he's getting the TARP thing through Congress. And I, I said to him, but what if TARP is not the answer to your problem? Might it not be better we talked about what the real source of the problem is? And then he went on to some story about Barack Obama. And so, uh, and I tried to persuade him. We had to get all the countries who were involved in this together. So we had to form an organization called the G20, 20 leading countries, including China, including India. We had to bring them all in. So when you look at a crisis, most of you think, oh, these politicians that let us down, you know, they've they made a mistake. Uh, but actually, you know, when you actually look at it, there are more fundamental causes always to something, something that goes wrong. I mean, I, I, um, I went uh, down to Brazil to try and enlist Brazil's support, Latin America support, to get coordinated action. Because we had to, we had to, the, 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 we had more trade depression. Trade was falling faster than during the Wall Street crash. I mean, that was what was happening in 2008, 9. So I went to see Lula. Now, Lula's a, a, an amazing guy. And so Lula told me this story. He said, when I was a young trade union leader, he said, and things were going wrong, and people said, who's to blame? And he said, and I always said the government, he said. And then I became the leader of the trade unions and things were still going wrong. People said, well, who, what's, who's to blame? What's going wrong? And I said, he said, the government. And then he became the leader of the opposition and said, things are still going wrong. He said, to blame, he said, the government. And then he said, and then I became the government. And people said, things are still wrong. Who's to blame? And he said, America. <laughs> that was Lila's answer. But we, we had all these meetings with all these politicians and, 
I, we had this great meeting in France, in Paris, and we had the president of France, the president of uh, the chancellor of Germany, the prime minister of Italy, head of the European Central Bank, all these people around the table. And I was so putting my argument about capital uh, and you needed to recapitalize. And all these Europeans thought, this is an American problem. They made mistakes. Let them sort it out. I said, look, you've got these troubled assets. You, you've got to do something about it. And we, we broke for a coffee. And then sort of suddenly I have Berlusconi. Now, I, I, many of you may have heard of Berlusconi. He was the prime minister of Italy, but he was also a businessman. He's also lucky not to be in prison. And uh, he's, he, he's, uh, he, he's, he's got a reputation for many, many, many things. Anyway, he was there and was up. And suddenly you hear Berlusconi saying, amateurs, in French, because we're in Paris. Les amateurs, he said. C'est son amateur. And we thought, Berlusconi, yeah, he's a businessman. He must have the answer to the crisis. We're all amateurs. And then suddenly he says, amateurs, he said, c'est son amateurs. And he said in Fred, in Fred, don't they realize we've got a press conference in one hour and none of them here, no leader, has brought a makeup artist with them. And that was his solution. And I don't think cosmetically improved politicians would have solved the crisis because, again, there were structural problems in the global economy. Uh, the interconnection of all the financial institutions had given people the impression that they diversified the risk. In fact, the risk was being concentrated in quite a few very big institutions. And Bemba Mankey told me afterwards that 18 out of the 20 institutions in America he feared after Lehman's could collapse. And it was only because we managed to take uh, action uh, that we got we got answers. And you see, America was absolutely central. I, I, you know, okay, it was the start of the problems with the subprime thing, but the whole of the global financial system was built on sand uh, because we hadn't uh, taken the uh, measures that would ensure the capital adequacy of our financial institutions. And they were lending money as if there was no tomorrow. And they were so highly leveraged that the minute that something went wrong, interest rates went up. Uh, the minute there was a run on something, they just couldn't cope, cope, cope with that. Now, what's different from 2008 to now is this, that America can no longer command. America's got to persuade. We're in a multipolar world, not a unipolar world. And if we want to keep uh, the different financial uh, centers on board, we've got to persuade them. We can't just cajole and command. And I think that's where America's got to lead. It is indispensable. It is the only country that can actually lead the world, but it can lead if it leads by persuasion, but it will not succeed if it leads simply by issuing edicts and, and commands. And I just go back to the exit from Afghanistan, where America made a unilateral decision to leave Afghanistan, didn't tell the other 35 countries until too late, and we had chaos. We really don't want that to happen again. So uh, I know Joe Biden is a multilateralist. He wants to persuade. He wants to work with people. But I think the lesson I take about current crises is that you can't just uh, do as we did 20 or 30 years ago. If we can get American on board, everything can happen. Uh, you've got to persuade uh, lots of countries in different parts of the world to do things. So you, you, you modestly did not tell them about the London conference in the spring of 2009. So, But I think that was the key to... Yeah, this, what, what happened was we had to get people together and we had to give people confidence. You know, you know what Roosevelt said, there is nothing to fear but fear itself. I mean, what I was basically trying to say was confidence in the future. And confidence today depends on us having confidence in the future. But we've got to show that we are confident about the future of the economy. So we devised this trillion package. So the world economy was about, what, 60, 60 trillion economy. And we thought if we could underpin the world economy 
uh, with uh, grants, but also with loans, with trade credits, and they all added up in the end to about a trillion dollars, then we can give people confidence that whatever happens, uh, we are prepared to do what it takes uh, to bring the world economy back to life. And it was by bringing people together that you could actually give the confidence that the whole world was united in trying to do something about this crisis. And as that trade was collapsing, and so was growth, but we had this conference in April in London, and after that, it is true if you look at the figures, that, that there was a sudden sort of recovery of confidence that led to a recovery of growth and recovery of trade, and we got out of this crisis a lot quicker than people expected, despite all the damage uh, that, that, that had been done. But so, so you bring all the 20 leaders together in London, so the Chinese president, the Indian prime minister, and so on and so forth. And of course, every leader has got his own particular interest. And Sarkozy, who was the president of France, had decided that he was going to ensure that one of the problems in the world economy, but it wasn't the central problem at the time, tax evasion, tax havens. He was going to outlaw tax havens because money was flowing out of every country. Revenues were being lost because people were using all these tax havens. And so he decided that he said, I'm going to walk out of this conference unless you agree uh, that you're going to take action against tax havens. And I was actually very supportive of what he was doing. The problem is, you wouldn't believe this, the one country that was holding out most, I mean, Switzerland and all these other countries were not at the G20, but the one country holding out most was China. China didn't want us to take action against tax evasion because they had this gambling den called Macau, and they wanted it to retain uh, its tax its status as, as, a, as a haven. And so we had said, you've got the black, you've got the white, you've got the gray, and if you're in the black or the gray, then action is going to be taken, and Macau was in one of these uh, lanes. And the Chinese uh, said they're going to walk out unless we uh, refuse to take a, a action against tax him. And so we had this standoff. President Obama was there, and I said, you know, can you talk to these guys and see what you can do? It didn't quite work out because they, they were in, it, 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 you know, they, they wouldn't agree on each other. So eventually we had a hit on this compromise that we would take action against tax havens, but we would announce it in Paris under the auspices of the OECD, which is another organization, and we wouldn't have it in the G20 communique, but we'd take action in Paris. Unfortunately, I, I, I had admitted to invite the head of the OECD to the, to the event, so it was a bit embarrassing when I had to phone him up and ask him to do this. So the French were very pleased because an announcement was being made for Paris to deal with tax havens, and the Chinese managed to go away thinking that there had been no decision of the G20 uh, that was recorded in their minutes uh, to deal with tax havens. But that was the start of what has now become a 15% global corporate tax around the world. We did, we did take action. But, you know, the whole thing could have broken down on that one issue. But, of course, the whole aim of the conference was actually to underpin the world, world economy. And whether we take action on tax at that particular time wasn't crucial. But you can see how each Blackwell and Marco worked it to keep out this gross target that we wanted in. Everybody had their own sort of thing to do. So it's a huge negotiation, and I had to travel around the world uh, meeting all the different people before the event so that we didn't have a blow-up at, at, at the event. And running an international uh, conference is, is, quite, is quite difficult when you've got so many different views. But if you could pull it off and you can get something done, then it can, it can make a difference. But we didn't seem to have this kind of coordinated action uh, when the COVID pandemic hit. Yeah, that, that, this, this, is, this is one of the reasons why the West has not had support over Ukraine. I mean, to be, to be honest, it, it is indefensible what has happened over vaccines, completely indefensible. Brilliant technological advance, 
getting the vaccine so quickly and making it available uh, where, where, where um, uh, you could afford it. Uh, but to be honest, the West hoarded the vaccine. I'd bet you there are tens of million vaccines still being destroyed in Europe and America, which were bought uh, because of the urgency of the need that could have gone to Africa and could have gone to other parts of the world where there are low-income countries, where only 20% of the population has, has even now been, been vaccinated once. And it, it, it's an absolute scandal that we could not distribute a vaccine of which we were able eventually to produce billions. We couldn't get it to the countries that needed it most. And there were some terrible examples of the European Union, for example, were purchasing vaccines to be manufactured in South Africa. And they were flying them out of South Africa into Europe at a time when Europe had enough vaccines and Africa had, had hardly any. And that, that is unconscionable, what, what, what's happened. And so if you look at the most recent events, if you look at the, the COVID and the lack of global cooperation, if you look at the fallout from energy prices and, 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 and food prices, the lack of cooperation and famine in a number of countries in Africa that is avoidable. There's not a shortage of food. There's a shortage of food in the right places at the right time, at the right cost. And now you look at the debt problems that Africa, I mean, lots of African countries are now paying back more in debt interest payments than they're putting into health, education, and social safety nets taken together. And we're not doing enough. We can't get a solution. We had debt relief in 2003, I think, when we agreed uh, to write off the debts of 36 countries that were the poorest countries in the world, uh, and we restructured debt then, there are countries in this desperate situation now, and we can't seem to be able to get an agreement. So there are global problems, uh, but we don't have global coordinated responses. And I think this is, you know, the G20 we called together in 2009 could deal with these problems, uh, but the momentum to do so is not there, partly because of Russia, partly because of the standoff between America and China, partly because everyone is retreating into the national silos. And I do say that nationalism has become the dominant ideology of the age. It's not neoliberal economics anymore. It's not sort of uh, Washington consensus economics. It's countries retreating into their national silos and deciding, even though it's not necessarily in their own enlightened self-interest, that they will pursue a narrow version of the self-interest even at the expense of cooperation, which could do a lot of good. So it's a very sad situation when you actually live around the world at the moment and see poverty rising, seeing the numbers of people who are now homeless and refugees as a result of drought and climate change, as well as a result of wars and conflict, and us doing so little about it. And it's one of my sadnesses that we, we can't get the world to work together because I think we'd all learn from each other, but we'd also be a better world if we could do this. Let me push gears before I turn this over to the audience. And uh, in your estimation, how dangerous to our economic and democratic futures are the anti-globalist, anti-free trade, anti-immigration movements here in the U.S. and seemingly across the developed world? And can political leaders turn that reactionary tide? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I, I was actually chair one of the IMF meetings a few years ago, and there was huge demonstrations outside protesting against the, the IMF. Uh, for all sorts of things. And there was there was one banner I saw there of people with all these sort of different banners at the demonstra demonstration. And it's, it said, worldwide campaign against globalization. <laughs> <laughs> and you sort of know what people meant. 
Uh, and, and the real problem about uh, the last 30 years, I think, is that globalization has been open. So we have uh, the free movement of uh, goods, services, capital, uh, data, uh, and, and everything else. And we've rather, had relatively cheap uh, uh, goods and services because of the China price, because uh, the wages paid, and obviously the countries producing these manufacturer goods have been far less than would have been paid in America or elsewhere. So we've had all these advantages, but globalization has not been inclusive. People don't feel that they benefited. And law half the world is better off because obviously uh, the uh, manufacturing jobs have moved to, to China and, and elsewhere. Uh, half the advanced countries, I mean, half of America and half of Britain feels left out. They feel that they haven't benefited in the way that they should have. So you look at this thing called the elephant uh, diagram. If you do economics, uh, Branko Malanovich has got this elephant uh, curve. And, and you see that in the middle, there's been a rise because China and the Asian workforces have benefited in terms of higher standards of living. Uh, the Western uh, middle class has done worse or stagnated. And then you've got this chunk at the end, which is the, the rise of the 1%, who've done incredibly well out of globalization, while others uh, feel that they haven't done well. And as long as you've got this uh, uh, sense that uh, people have not done well enough out of this, you're going to get populist movements. And you could, people are going to blame trade and you know, anti-trade movements to impact probably a lot of the problems are due to their technological redundancies and everything else. So unless you can have an inclusive globalization, you're not going to be able to persuade people uh, to, if you like, exit these nationalist uh, silos and protectionist uh, policies that are being pursued in every uh, country around the world at the moment. I mean, we've now got um, uh, trade uh, protectionism. We've got technological decoupling, if you like. We've got capital uh, bans, you know, so you can't invest in this country or that country. Uh, we've now got data sort of uh, bans, uh, you know, TikTok and all that sort of stuff happening. Uh, the internet, there's a danger of having a splinternet, two internets, because of the difference in regimes for, for, for supervising them. So all these things are happening. I think you go down to what is the root problem then? What is wrong? What is wrong is that we've, we've had the benefits of opening up the world, uh, but the world is not flat in the sense that everybody's doing as well as everybody else. Uh, we haven't made it uh, globalization inclusive, and we will pay a heavy price if we don't concentrate on doing that. So the issue is not whether you have globalization or not. It's here to stay. The issue is whether you manage it well or badly. And we've managed it badly. And you can't just manage it in one country. Uh, you can't solve the problems that we're talking about simply by retreating into one country, because these are problems that are global, that need global answers. We've got to find a better way of working together to make for the inclusivity that I'd like to see in the, in the global order. Uh, at Thomas, we're going to pass to questions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Shram, for organizing this meeting, uh, Prime Minister. Uh, Lady Rocket, founder of Copernic Space and American Space Entrepreneur. In 2019, you visited Abu Dhabi and you spoke so eloquently uh, during New York, Abu Dhabi, New York University event about economy, space, China. And you spoke very eloquently about how countries which built international space station cannot collaborate on planet Earth economically and work with each other. Your statement is even more uh, timely right now. So I would love to ask you a question about how do you reflect on your statements from 2019 now and very quickly, I traveled to Ukraine in May last year, and I am back on my 
way. Uh, my mission was a private mission was to address education and delivery of education to the young students in Ukraine. Uh, if you could have any comments on that as I am going back and setting up some additional programs. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I can talk to you about computers getting to Ukraine for the younger children and the efforts that we made to make sure that uh, some education could continue even in difficult circumstances. You know, come back to the, um, I mean, when Reagan met Gorbachev and they had this conversation and Reagan, who was obviously interested in Star Wars and everything else, said, you know, if a, if a meteor was going to hit us from outer space uh, uh, and we were the target, would you help us? And Gorbachev said, of course, of course I will. And Reagan said, me too. And that was, it, it, you know, breaking the ice, so to speak. And it led in the end uh, to the International Space Station. And the International Space Station, people don't really understand this when, when you actually tell them that above our heads every few, few, few hours is this space station going around with an American astronaut uh, and a Russian astronaut, a cosmonaut at the same time. And it could not work without Russian launchers, and it couldn't work without American technology in the space station. And since the 1990s, despite all the difficulties with Putin, with Russia, with everything else, uh, we managed to keep this, uh, this going. And I think it's Russia is pulling out in 2025, and I think it's got to come to an end. But it was an example of international cooperation that suggested if you could actually cooperate in the, the highest heavens, uh, surely you could do something better. Uh, to cooperate uh, or, or, on Earth, but that kind of cooperation has actually uh, been undermined. And it involved about, what, 13 years, and it was about 20 countries as well as Russia and, and, and America uh, 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 taking people up, in, up, up into space. So I, I hope that these kinds of projects will continue because it does show what we have in common and what we can achieve in, 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 common, in common together. So, uh, you know, it, it's a tragedy that this International Space Station will come to an end uh, but you can understand the gains that have been made through people working together over the last 30 years. Hi, Prime Minister. Thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. It's very much appreciated. I wanted to ask a question about a comment you made last year when you were um, advocating that the uh, International Criminal Court um, prosecuted President Putin. Um, you said that, quote, if we were to acquiesce in any way in regards to prosecuting Putin for war crimes, none of us could ever take freedom for granted ever again or be sure that democracy or peace would triumph over totalitarianism. Um, when speaking of democracy and peace in Ukraine, I think it's important to note that the U.S. government backed oppositional neo-Nazi politicians and parties linked to fascist uh, paramilitaries like Svoboda in Ukraine in 2014 uh, that then overthrew the democratically elected President Viktor Yanukovych. This was even after uh, even Victor Victoria Nuland was caught on the phone picking the next leader of Ukraine after Yanukovych's fall. Um, or we can describe the U.S. role in Yanukovych's overthrow as uh, the Democratic Senator Chris Murphy did when he said, quote, with respect to Ukraine, we, meaning the U.S., have not have not sat on the sidelines. We have been very much involved. Members of the Senate who have been there, members of the State Department who have been on the square, the Obama, Obama administration passed sanctions. I really think that the clear position of the United States has in part been what has helped lead to this change in regime. So my question for you is, do you oppose the actions and position of the United States that, uh, in the words of Senator Murphy, helped lead to the regime change of the democratically elected former president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych? Well, what I was talking about last year was about the crime of aggression. That's what I was talking about. And that's the central foundational crime that we're dealing with. That's what's caused the war. So I'm not going back to 2012, 13, or 14. 
I'm saying you can prove and demonstrate that Putin made a decision to invade uh, Ukraine. You can chapter and verse it, and you can bring him before an international tribunal because he's guilty of a war crime in this in this instance. Now, America does not support the International Criminal Court because it uh, it has not is not a signatory to that. And Russia and Ukraine, including Ukraine, are not signatories to the amendment to the court, which is the crime of aggression. That was introduced later. So what you have to do is create a special tribunal, like at Nuremberg, dealing with the war crimes of the Nazis or the Japanese war crimes in the criminal court in, in Tokyo. And that's what I think we should do, that the powers should get together. We should hold uh, Putin accountable. We should, if necessary, try him in his absence because the key question here, and, and I know you've got other information you want to bring to us, but the key question here is if you allow a crime of aggression to go unpunished and you take no action uh, that uh, that holds someone responsible, then this will happen again and again. Do you believe that the crime of aggression for Bush invading Iraq and uh, uh, should go unpunished? I would make here uh, is that the crime of aggression has been agreed by the International Criminal Court as a crime that deserves to be punished in the international stage after 2011, I think. But that was only this year. But, but, well, no, but I'm saying that was only this year, right? Um, you were advocating for that before that. Do you agree that even though the International Criminal Court hasn't assigned that, in your personal opinion, do you think that Bush should be tried for um, war crimes, for his uh, crimes of aggression in Iraq? Even if you wanted to, you could, because it doesn't come in with the statutes of the International Criminal Court. So I look at the facts instead of uh, giving me propaganda. The truth is that the International uh, Criminal Court would not be able to try the crime of aggression against Putin, but a special tribunal should do so. Wait, what? That's what I recommend. Hey, hey. Thank you so much. But how am I saying propaganda if I'm saying that? But you're done with the question. Thank you. You can talk to him after. Hi, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you speaking. Uh, my question relates to the sort of introduction of AI in the global economy. Um, specifically, to what extent do you see the gradual deconstruction of legitimate information, such as content created in AI, contribute uh, to the restructuring of the global hegemony within the next five to ten years? Thank you. Well, that's uh, an almost impossible question to you know, I've, got, I've got to consult chat GBT for the man. Oh, my God. Uh, what I worry about is that we're going to have two different systems and we'll have what you call the students in that. And you'll have one rigidly uh, controlled authoritarian uh, system uh, administered by one set of people and another set of uh, institutions in, in the field of AI, but also uh, IT generally uh, controlled by really uh, uh, in the free world by, by a number of very big companies. And so... Yeah, I, 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 Tip Berners-Lee, who, who was the guy who invented the World Wide Web, uh, he, he used to tell me that, and he has proposed this, that the the individual whose information is held by Google or Apple or TikTok or whatever should have control over that information. It should be owned by that, and they should have the power, if they want to sell it to Google, to charge them uh, uh, for it. And this would be a complete sort of upturning of uh, uh, the conventional way that these things work. I really think we've got to think about who controls the information, what rights you have to your own information, and why these rights should not be invaded by either authoritarian regimes or by uh, commercial companies simply simply for profit, uh, giving them far more control on the people. So 
It's a more general answer I'm giving you about the control of information, simply the AI, where there's a huge debate about how far it's going to move beyond it with like human intelligence. Uh, but I do think we should start from first principles here and say, if there is information in this world, who actually should be in control of it? And if it's certainly information about you, you should have more say over it. We need to do something about that. Hi. Um, thanks, Prime Minister, for being here. I actually have two questions. My first one is next year, there's two big elections, the presidential US elections and then the UK general elections. I was wondering, what are your predictions? And then my second question is, you know, there's a lot of sort of budding and aspiring politicians and sort of campaign strategists um, in the audience today. What are your sort of top tips and advice for students who want to get into the field who may not have gone to a top law school or done PPE at Oxbridge? Thanks. Well, the first thing I noticed is I'm too young to be an American politician. Uh, <laughs> to be something by uh, to call it by, even for the primaries, as far as I could see. Um, but uh, nationalism, I'm afraid, is going to dominate these elections, even though we won't use the word when we actually look at the campaign. It's Bush's America first. Uh, Biden is a multilateralist, and whom I respect greatly uh, for his uh, work internationally, has got a policy of Buy America which is very similar. And so you see more and more protectionist actions taken by almost every government throughout the world. So you protect in the trade, you protect your investment, you're uh, mercantilist in the way you're batting uh, uh, this this and that, whether it's data or whether it's uh, uh, you're, you're, you're giving industrial subsidies. So I, I, I think in Britain and in most of parts of Europe, and there's a Spanish election happening up with a number of other countries, uh, People are retreating into these national silos. And, uh, one of the worries I've got is that the more you fight these... So, so one of Trump says, uh, uh, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to announce that uh, you will uh, fire nuclear weapons if, uh, if China invades Taiwan. You know, you, you put yourself in, in, in a different position where uh, one of the candidates pushes the whole debate to, to even greater extremes and, and, and so you've got this worry about protectionism and mercantilism and nationalism, and you've also got this worry that once you're in that territory, uh, you move towards extremes. So I distinguish between patriotism, which is the love of your country, and, and every person who's a citizen of a country, and you know, a huge group belong to that country and to the identity because of that, will feel patriotic pride. But nationalism in the ideology which pits us against them, and there's always an enemy. There's always some resentment that is imaginary or real. There's always some absolutist position. And if we retreat in these elections, so I'm not giving you advice about who's going to win or not, uh, but if we retreat into the, in these elections into this nationalist rhetoric, uh, xenophobic uh, rhetoric on one side, the Fed is going to be oppressive by another, then the world moves further and further into being silos and, and, and finds itself unable to cooperate. I mean, you take one example, a comprehensive trade, tra uh, trans-Pacific trade partnership. It was an American idea to bring all these countries together. And then because of the heat of the election in 2016, both Hillary and uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, said that they would pull out of this comprehensive trade, trade partnership. And then other countries went ahead and, and did it. And America stays out with Britain's part of it, and other countries are part of it, Canada, I think, part of it. Uh, and now you've got this ridiculous situation where America had proposed a trans-Pacific partnership 
to keep China out so that they'd have a group of countries that were not China that would actually trade with each other. China is applied to join this comprehensive partnership because America uh, wanted to be part of it at all. Now, the budget for America is to be part of these the peace partnerships. Most of the country would probably, if you had a sort of rational discussion about it, we would probably agree to do so. But because of the nationalist rhetoric, um, you know, you end up saying we're not going to have these uh, foreign engagements, we're not going to do these things, and you retreat into your, into your national asylum. So I'm not answering your question on election strategy, I know that, but I am saying what my worry is about what's happening during these campaigns. And it will be the same in Britain, which led us to Brexit, where he have written out. Look, you know, when you, when you think of Brexit and Europe, I mean, Britain benefited from being part of Europe. 50% was trade as with the rest of Europe. And now we're outside Europe and we're losing a lot of trade that we used to have without the ability to, to replace it. And I'll just add, 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 add a little story. I mean, all these people that advocated for Brexit, you know, and uh, there's this guy who's doing, uh, perhaps a year who was African, who was doing this interview with this uh, radio station. And he's been asked, well, why? Why do you so against uh, trading with other countries? Why are you against uh, Europe? Why are you so hostile? Is it? And eventually the interviewer got so frustrated. He said, one way, why? Is it ignorance or is it apathy? And the guy says, I don't know and I don't care. Thank you. <laughs> I, the irrationality of these debates is something that you just got to. I wish and you could move beyond. That's all I'm saying. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, my question is to do with that kind of global collaboration, which I agree is really important to solving these global solutions. Do you think to achieve this global collaboration, we don't just need to see eye to eye with other countries, but also see eye to eye with other people within our own countries? Like we're seeing in America, there's this increasing political division between, between Democrats, Republicans, and England the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, and each country has their own division. Do we need to solve these issues first, or will they come hand-in-hand hand with that global collaboration? Yeah, yeah. Look, you, you need to start to understand each other and understand that some of the the differences are artificially manipulated. And anybody who's looked at this Fox case uh, this week uh, in relation to the, uh, the the company that was doing the, uh, 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 the, the voting systems, uh, knows that it was Fox deciding it was in its interest uh, not to tell the truth uh, rather than believing something that turned out not to be true. So there was willful uh, malice, as you might say, in the way that these things they would be done. But the other thing I would just finish off by saying is if you're going to solve some of these problems, you do need some lateral thinking. You, you need to think out of the box. You, you can't just sort of keep with the same old ideas and the same old sort of assumptions and just do things that you used to do. And I'm very struck by a story about America that sort of uh, I keep saying to myself is is really interesting because you had some brilliant people in America in the last uh, century, uh, lateral thinkers in many ways, but they had a blind spot. Uh, uh, and, and this is true of some of the people that are in the political world as well. So J.P. Morgan, as you probably know from your history, was the most successful banker at the turn of the the 20th century, and invested in all these things successfully, and he managed to uh, solve crises, and uh, he was regarded as uh, the great investor and everything else. But he had one blind spot, because Thomas Edison came to him and was working for him, uh, and he refused to invest in his electricity, not believing that it was going to work. So J.P. Morgan, the great investor, had a blind spot, and he, he, he wanted Edison to give up on electricity and work for him in other respects. 
and and of course uh, Edison went on to to be what was called the invention factory, and J.P. Morgan had a blight spot there, successful in everything else. But Thomas Edison, then, he became so successful uh, as the inventor, and Henry Ford came to and was working for it. And Henry Ford said, I want to invest, will you support my investment in the internal combustion industry and the motor cart? Thomas Edison had a blight spot, and he said, no, I, this is never going to work. <laughs> and so Thomas Edison, the great inventor, rejected Henry Ford, who had to go out with his own, his first company failed. And then he was successful. And then just think of Henry Ford, incredibly successful. Fordism, modern manufacturing techniques, everything really successful. And then he decides he's going to stand for the Senate. And uh, Woodrow Wilson persuades him uh, that he should, uh, should stand. And first of all, he makes every mistake in the business, successful in every area, multi-billionaire in, in today's uh, money. Uh, and he's standing in Michigan where, of course, he's, he's been the, the great um, success story employing all the workers, so he should automatically almost be elected as a senator. But he makes every mistake in the, in the, in the book. First of all, he starts as a, a, as a Republican, and I think he doesn't get the nomination, so he switches to the Democrats, which is pretty opportunistic and not the best thing to do on the day of uh, a few days before an election. And then secondly, Henry Ford says, I'm not going to campaign. I, I'm not going to make speeches. And he doesn't do any canvassing. And, and instead, he hires 40 detectives to try and expose his opponent as corrupt. <laughs> and so he makes every mistake in the book. So this genius in other areas can get politics right. And it does make you think that what you need is all the talents. You need people who've got the insight to see where there are blind spots, to see where things are not working uh, well. And you know, I like to think you go back to the financial crisis and you had to understand the causes before you could solve it. And I think today we've got to have the deep and profound thinking that is necessary to understand what lies behind all these individual issues that are dividing countries so that we can actually find solutions uh, to, 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 to the problem. So yes, people have got to find a better way of working together and understand uh, beyond prejudice uh, that everybody has something to offer and that you, you should bring people into the discussion. But I think also we need to have this lateral thinking because these are complex problems that need uh, difficult solutions to come to. And you need everybody who's got the insights and the ability to, to contribute uh, to be there if you're going to actually change, change the world in the way I think most of us here would like to see things improve. So thank you very much for the chance to be here. That applause is a tribute to the incisive and eloquent insights you've given us today. And I want to thank you as well for your visits and contributions over the years to learning at USC. And as not only this program, but the semester itself winds down, let me thank all those who have been with us on campus for our programs and everyone who's watched our events remotely. Thank you and have a good day. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.